there are a lot of moving parts uh, these days, and certainly I, that's how I feel right now. Um, and uh, as was mentioned, Susie's father passed away a few days ago, and we are leaving next Saturday to fly to the southeast. Uh, I'll be doing the funeral on June 2nd at Tallahassee Memorial Cemetery, or National Cemetery, and we'll have a military honor guard and all those things. And so uh, he was 94, so it is a time of celebration, even though it's a time of mourning and loss. And I appreciate prayer for that. Thank you for all of you who have sent cards or sent notes. We really appreciate that. So God bless you for that. Thank you very much. Uh, next Sunday, Cam, Mr. Cam will be preaching next Sunday. And uh, so anything you have a question about regarding the Bible or any other issue, if you go to Cam, he will resolve them all next week. <coughs> also, one other thing to pray about, uh, something happened Friday. One of my former students uh, passed away from a heart attack. He was only 40. And there's a chance I'll do the funeral when I'm in the southeast, so we're trying to figure that out. So there's just so many things going on right now. I want to thank all of you who were at our town hall this morning. Uh, would you raise your hand if you were at the town hall? We're not taking attendance, but thank you. I, I, I was very impressed with the turnout. I appreciate you guys being there. Uh, and just a quick note on that. I was thinking of some things I'd like to share with the body uh, as we go along, one of which is there are a lot of things in tension. Uh, when I say tension, that's not necessarily bad. They just... They're just intention, you know, for example, we are a family. We're also a corporation in the state of Colorado. We're a nonprofit organization in the eyes of the IRS. So it's not one or the other. Those things are intention, and we want to make sure that we're ministering. We're going to see that in the book of Acts because you're going to have this body ministering, and then they're going to need some structure. And, you know, so those things are just there. They're not problems. They're just things we have to navigate around, and we'll be uh, talking about those more. All right, so speaking of the book of Acts, uh, there are a lot of moving parts this morning. So my job is to give you a rousing introduction to the book of Acts, to help you uh, be able to understand the Bible better, even on your own, uh, to get you to think some things you never thought about before, and to do all of that in the three hours that's been allotted to me. So that's our goal. Uh, so anyway, would you turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Ah, Sid, why are you doing this to us? Because we have to start in the book of Luke. Somebody had said, well, if you're going to teach Acts, you should teach Luke. And I, I've mentioned this before, I'm an interim pastor. <laughs> How many years are you going to give me? Uh, so anyway, and after this morning, not many. So anyway, I'm just kidding. But Luke chapter 1, I'd like to share with you a quote from A.W. I'm sorry, I switched that around. So uh, before I go to A.W. Tozer, as we go through the book of Acts, I am going to take a blank slate approach to the book of Acts. And I know some of you have been studying the Bible for quite a long time. And you know what really well? Some of you have been trained in inductive Bible study. Uh, you might have gone to Precept or BSF or CBS, one of those. But, and I appreciate that. I'm really glad you're here. Others of you have not had that training, and I want to equip you uh, to be able to get into the Bible and understand it uh, as you look at it. And so this morning, I want to kick this off uh, with what I call making the Bible come alive. And I'm going to give you just a taste of it this morning. So what happened was, years ago, when I was younger, uh, we were in Georgia in a church there, and the church wanted to get involved in drama on Sunday morning up on the stage. <laughs> so when I say the church wanted to get involved in drama, that can mean a lot of things. But in this case, in the worship service, and Susie and I went to a worship drama conference, and there was a lady there. She was one of the uh, speakers who was an actress and also a director. And she was sharing uh, what she 
uh, did to prepare for a role and how she researched the character and how also she thought about the different dynamics of the character's background and personality. And the more she talked, the more she, I thought, you know, those are the things that we do in Bible study, that I was trained to do in Bible study. And the man who got me kick-started on that, y'all I'm sure have heard of Dr. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, and, and Dwight also had uh, him as a professor. And Hendricks really got you looking at the Bible, and one of the things he did was, in the first class you had with him, and you had to take it as a freshman, uh, he would take you to Acts 1-8, you know, Acts 1-8, you know, which we might see, <laughs> you know, the gospel going from where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the other most part of the earth. And he said, I want you to make 25 observations on Acts 1-8. I was like, well, dude, uh, I can do four or five. So it was rugged, and I somehow slimed through the 25. And so you go into the next class, and what does he say then? Do 25 more observations. And I was like, I sucked all the juice out of that verse in the first five observations. How can I do 25 more? And then we came into the next class, and it was like, do 25 more. So you're doing 75 observations. Only later did I figure out that probably you could take Acts chapter 1, verse 8, one verse only, and do, if not hundreds, thousands of observations. At least hundreds. And you're saying, how can that be? Well, I'd like to share that with you as we go through this process and help you understand that. So anyway, there was that, all those things combined, and then I had a lot of people coming to me, and it was not only high school kids, it was adults, and they would say, Sid, you see all this stuff in the Bible, but when I look at the Bible, I see a wall of words. It's black and white, and I can't get anything out of it. Any of you ever feel this way? So it's like, how can I take people who have not been trained in Bible study by Howard Hendricks or Precept or whoever, and how can I help them get into the Word of God? And I started to, to kick some thoughts around and eventually came up with a thing called making the Bible come alive. And it sounded really good on paper, but it's like, will this even work? So what we did was we had a youth retreat. We had high school students and college students from Georgia, and they were sharp kids, and we went to the Baptist Conference Center in Tacoa, Georgia. Now, y'all know, have y'all heard Tacoa? All right, anybody that, I don't know if you guys are into movies or if you think I'm going to hell because I mentioned a movie. I mean, if you do, y'all need to let me know afterwards and I'll stop. But how many of you are Band of Brothers fans? The Army, Band of Brothers. Well, you might remember that there was a camp there at Tacoa called Kurahi. You remember that? Kurahi. And we actually, part of our youth retreat, climbed Kurahi. But when we weren't climbing Kurahi, we were in our sessions and I was experimenting with making the Bible come alive and it exploded in a really really good way and these kids were seeing stuff that I hadn't even seen I mean it's amazing how well it went and so I started to leverage that and try to use it wherever I could and I'm not here this morning to teach you the whole program because we are in the book of Acts and we need to get in the scriptures but I'm going to throw some things out there for you to think about that I am going to dip into as we're in the book of Acts because I would like to help you be able to see things in the Bible that are there that you've never noticed. So with that in mind, I took, and because I'm a seminary grad, I have to alliterate, 12 words that all start with the letter S and to make it memorable, and the first three are see, seek, soak. Would you repeat that after me? See, seek, soak. I'll get to see in just a moment. Next one is story, stage, stars. Repeat that, please. Story, stage, stars. 
So what were the first three? Yeah, y'all are sharp. What were the next three? We will definitely get into that a bit today. And then the third, this is a little longer, but sequence site setting. Repeat, sequence site setting. And speak, spec, spray. Say that with me. Speak, spec, spray. Now your tongues are all twisted. So the idea behind see, and that's what I'll camp out on for just a moment, is to see things in the Bible that are there but that you've never noticed before. So as an experiment, and we're not going to do it now, but I would have people take a look at John 3.16, and I choose that because everybody knows John 3.16. Most everybody's memorized it. And I'll say, okay, I want you to read it a few times, and I want you to see some things you've never seen before in John 3.16. And by golly, they would. And... Uh, and then I would say, okay, now when you read it out loud, read it out loud for me, and they would, and I'd say, okay, now what if you were to change the verbal emphasis you put on a syllable? For example, how does John 3.16 go? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc. Well, you choose when you read it to emphasize a word, like for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What if I emphasized only? He gave his only begotten son, his only begotten son, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, which gets us into an interesting discussion about God's sovereignty uh, for another time. But you get the idea. It's like there are things there. We think we've seen it all, and we have not. So as we look at the book of Acts, look for things you've never noticed before. And I even did that in studying uh, for this this morning. And it's like I saw a couple of things I've never seen before. Uh, when I was in seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost uh, that Dwight also had Pentecost as a professor. Now, Pentecost had been around for 800 years. And, uh, and even at that advanced age, he would get in there and intimidate us in class, putting us on the spot. But I would go to his office before class, and I would see he'd be kicking back at his desk, reading the scriptures for the day, because he'd never stop learning. And he wanted to see if he could see something new that he'd never seen before and refresh his mind. So that's kind of the thing we want to do. And the other thing is uh, story stage stars. I'm going to show you how important that is for your Bible study, but for now I'm going to move on. A.W. Tozer made a quote that I like, and of course in a sermon you have to quote Tozer, A.B. Simpson, uh, John Calvin, or Spurgeon. And so here's your Tozer quote. While it looks like everything is out of control, behind the scenes there is a God who has not surrendered authority. Amen? And Brandon kind of touched on that with his prayer. And that's our trust. That's our hope in God. And we pray, even when things look like they're out of control in our country, God has not surrendered authority. And that's what I felt like after our fire. Jesus did not jump off the throne just because a fire happened in Colorado in 2013. And that's my trust. Now, what I'm going to do, uh, now that I've got you in Acts chapter 1, or Luke chapter 1, pardon me, let me give you this timeline. It might be useful. If any of you want this, we could arrange to get it to you, but just for now, just look at it. If you want to jot it down, that's great. I think it's very helpful as we get into the book of Acts to put it in the context of the timing and of the map. And so if you look at the Last Supper, it's felt occurred on Thursday, April 2nd in the year A.D. 33. So Thursday, April 2nd. And this is not a joke. That's the... The belief, uh, especially scholars like Harold Honer, who got his PhD at Cambridge and did a lot of study of the chronology of Jesus, uh, came to that conclusion. He's not the only one. 
The thinking is the crucifixion took place on Friday, April 3rd, A.D. 33, from noon to 3 p.m. Jesus was dying for our sins. Uh, supposedly there was, I think, a major eclipse uh, that day. But um, Friday, April 3rd, that would put the resurrection Sunday, April 5th. There's your three days, including Friday and Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Resurrection by sunrise on Sunday morning, April 5th. Then you go 40 days further and you get to the Ascension, which is where we'll be in Acts chapter 1 on Thursday, May 14th, the day of Ascension. And then the day of Pentecost, Sunday, May 24th, which would be 10 days after Ascension. Now, this year, the day of Pentecost is celebrated. Pentecost Sunday is, is June 5th. We were going to be in the Pentecost passage, but uh, because I'll be out of town, we won't be, but uh, we're coming up on that, that period. Uh, so that's Sunday, May 24th. A little more about the timeline. Just, I think this is helpful. I, if you're like me, I'm into timeline maps, and it's helpful to me to put the big picture together. The crucifixion occurred in A.D. 33. The book of Acts begins right after the crucifixion, of course, a few weeks later. Paul's conversion, we think, took place around A.D. 35, so a couple of years after the church begins in the book of Acts. The famous Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 probably was A.D. 49. Paul was put into prison in A.D. 60, and Paul died A.D. 67. It's thought the book of Acts was written around A.D. 68, which would have put it right after the death of Paul. Your emperors during that time, Augustus was the emperor when Jesus Christ was born. He was officially the first emperor in the Roman Empire. Then you have Tiberius, and then you have Nero, who's infamous, and there were outbreaks of persecution under Tiberius, and of course Nero, and Paul was put to death. He probably faced Nero, and Nero put him to death. So that's a little on the timeline. Your map, <clears throat> anybody in here, anybody else a map person? Yeah, amen. So <laughs> it's ironic, the map people are sitting in the back. I know you can't read the fine print, I can't read it either, but just to give you an idea, the Roman Empire, Rome is in the upper left-hand corner where it says Italy, look closely, you see Rome, and the Roman Empire just spanned the Mediterranean region and went inland for a ways. Their big enemy was the Parthian Empire, and uh, there's some thought that the Parthians, actually, the wise men were Parthians, and so when they came into Judea looking for the king, that's what freaked out Herod because they were an enemy of Rome. Now, in the lower right, you see Arabia. And I, you know, I know you all know this probably, but if you don't, this will be helpful to you. And that glob of stuff just northwest of Arabia is what we call Israel. And let me get a little closer in on that, that little box there. And that's what it looks like, Judea and uh, Samaria in the northern part. The Decapolis, the ten cities over across from the Sea of Galilee area, and Galilee further up north. Galilee was considered to be rural, and so the Galileans were considered to be, if you will, country bumpkins, not as intelligent as the people in Jerusalem. That was the slam. And so that's your map, and the big red dot is what? That is Jerusalem. That is Jerusalem. So it gives you an idea. So what I'm going to do throughout the book of Acts, I think you'll find this very helpful is that I am going to have a series of slides to get you oriented every passage, where we're at, what's going on. And the first thing is to know that today's passage, when we finally get to it, uh, is in Jerusalem, solely in Jerusalem. The meeting place, they're going to be on the Mount of Olives, but as far as meeting, they're in the upper room. There is no church building. They're in the upper room. There is an actual photo of the upper room. How many of you all been to Israel? 
Anybody see this when you're in Israel? There's debate about whether that's the real thing. It looks very Byzantine to me, but what, uh, what they'll tell you is it's either here or near. That's what you hear all the time in Israel. So in that area somewhere, that was the upper room. They'll take you to it, you know, uh, because you're a tourist. The structure, this is important to know. When we begin the book of Acts, do not underestimate this. This is all we've got in the body of Christ. Jesus, 120 followers, and that includes 11 apostles. So remember, Jesus fed the 5,000, but most of them abandoned him. So by the time we get to the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts, there are only 120 followers. Isn't that staggering? That that small number of people under the power of the Holy Spirit was able to transform the Roman Empire, the greatest empire of its day. By the time you get to the second half of the book of uh, Acts chapter 1, what you have is 11 apostles and 120 followers. Why is that? Why would that be? This is not a trick question. What's going to happen in our passage? Liftoff. The ascension of Jesus Christ. He's gone. And the Holy Spirit has not come down yet. So what we have now is 11 apostles and total 120 followers. Probably trying to figure out what in the world's going on. The audience of Jesus there would be the 11 apostles and the growth report, this is really how Acts breaks down in terms of the structure of the book of Acts. If you notice in the book of Acts, and I'll tell you, there are growth reports throughout. Now look at that bar chart. You see that tiny sliver at the bottom? That's 120 people. It's almost nothing. But watch what's going to happen as we go through the book of Acts. It's staggering, absolutely staggering. So you have to get the growth report, and uh, we'll get into that. Uh, that we'll get into later. So we'll watch the body of Christ grow right in front of our eyes. It's awesome. Now let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Dedication to Theophilus. What in the world? And why are we in Luke? Luke chapter 1. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Well, Luke is a medical doctor, he is a physician. And he does a lot of research, and he researches the story of Jesus Christ. Theophilus is probably a Roman official, so that Theophilus will understand. And so Luke, the 24 chapters of Luke, tell the story of Jesus Christ on the earth, and his death, burial, resurrection, and his appearance after his resurrection. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, on the Emmaus Road, he ends up speaking to a couple of people that don't realize that he is Jesus until what? He goes to their home and he's breaking bread. And when he does that, he disappears and they realize they had Jesus in their midst. Now let me tell you a bit about the time period that we're in here and see if this rings a bell. In the New Testament era, they were in a split system. They were under the Roman, the Roman control. Roman rule was very harsh. 
it was total it was tolerant in the Roman Empire until you went against what they believed and taught and expected there was suppression and high taxation of the subjects there was pervasive idolatry similar to the Greek gods we've seen before for example the temple of Artemis in Ephesians there were metal workers who made idols, food sacrificed to idols. There was sorcery and demonic activity. You ever thought about how many people are demon-possessed in the Gospels? It's kind of crazy. They were fascinated by speculation and philosophy. What is truth? There was rampant violence and immorality, for example, in the Colosseums. Uh, and during the first century, during the early church, the violence got worse and worse. I could tell you, but I don't want to disturb you, and I know we have kids in here, so I'm not going to get graphic, but I will say that everything they could do to make it an exciting spectacle, it ended up with literal bloodshed they would do. It was disgusting, absolutely disgusting. And so that was in the Roman Empire. In Judaism, the Jewish realm of the day in Israel, what we call Israel, Politically and militarily, they were under the control of Rome, but there was this rigid, Pharisaic spirit of rules and regulations. In the Babylonian captivity, they had gone into captivity for 70 years because they had been idolatrous. And so the Jews said, we'll never be idolatrous again. But what they did was they created this massive series of rules. And that was the expectation. So there were picky rules for everything. For example, this is slightly gross, but I think you can handle it. You were not allowed to spit on the Sabbath. Why is that? Because when you did, it would roll over on the ground, create a little trench. You were plowing. And you weren't allowed to plow on the Sabbath. That was working. So that's how picky it got. And uh, it was just crazy. There was law without grace. It was religion of the letter. And yet there was messianic expectation. When's he coming back? We want to know when the Lord is coming back. When the Messiah is coming. And we want the Messiah to get rid of Rome. Also, I want you to think about this. It was an era fraught with tension, divided political loyalties, political unrest. There were concerns about religious freedom. They were abused and unfairly treated. They suffered from bandits and plagues and famine. The daily threat of violence was real. There was hypocrisy and political corruption at every level. They were constantly ripped off financially. The tax collectors milked them dry. They were constantly watched and suppressed by the strongest army in world history to date. The world felt apocalyptic. They said time was running out. They thought a Messiah was around the corner and would soon give them a better world. And if you were a disciple of Jesus from Nazareth, you thought you had found the Messiah. And then he died. So understand, this is the culture in Acts chapter 1. This is what was on their mind. And yet, with all of that, Galatians 4.4 4 says... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's got the time in His hand, and it's under control. The problem is, it's not our timing. It's not what we want. We want to rush it. We want Him to tell us the date, and He didn't. 
The Roman Empire, by the way, in 24 B.C. was 1,060,000 square miles in size. The population was 56,800,000. The Roman Empire in A.D. 117 at its height was 1,900,000 square miles. So in that first century, the Roman Empire grew twice as large. The common language was Greek. And the Romans built roads around the world. And all of that God used to spread the gospel in the first century. Common language, Greek. Roads everywhere. They could communicate. They could travel. And God was ready to get it going with the spread of the gospel. Now, um, if you will, don't do it now, but later look at Luke chapter 24. Um, I'll just read to you how the book ends. The book of Luke ends, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 1. I told you we will get into Acts. Acts chapter 1, and verse 1. In the first book, Theophilus. Whoa, Theophilus. So Acts is actually Luke, volume 2. Written to Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And sure enough, on the day of Pentecost, that's what happens. But we're not there yet. And I think one reason Jesus tells them to stay and wait in Jerusalem and not go any further is because he is going to leave them and the Holy Spirit has not come down yet. And he's saying, hey, you need to stay in Jerusalem because you're not equipped to go out yet. You're not going to have us with you. So you hang out until the Holy Spirit comes down. And uh, when we get to Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 2, that's just an incredible thing when it happens. So that's what we see here in Acts chapter 1. Now, what I'd like for you to do, I said I'd like for you to observe. Um, anything you see here in this passage that you've never noticed before? Now, I don't know how interactive we want to be, but just take a look. Have you noticed something today maybe you never saw before? Um, I kind of noticed that about, you know, this idea of not to leave Jerusalem. And why? And maybe you've noticed something else. And of course, if you've never read the passage, then everything was new to you. But, uh, you know, take just a moment, read this paragraph, and see if you see something you've never noticed before. Would anybody like to share um, something you saw? Don't you? Speaking about the kingdom of God. It's 
good. Anyone else? Take one more. Yes, many convincing proofs. And, uh, and you notice, if you hadn't thought about it, there's a ton of eyewitnesses. He appeared to hundreds. And uh, that's a part of the whole thing. Uh, people would go out and say, I saw him. I saw the resurrected Christ. And so many proofs. So thank you for that. So like I said, just hang out and uh, we'll, we'll get it done. But don't go anywhere. You stay in Jerusalem. And they would have congregated in the upper room. Well, let's go down to uh, um, verse 6. So when they had come together, so even that, I'm thinking, how did they come together? Where were they? Where did they come together? Upper room. Where were they when they weren't coming together? Were they home? Where was Jesus? Where did Jesus stay? All these kind of questions. Did they have coffee? Did they have a, did they have a coffee bar? You know, all these kind of questions. Did they serve donuts? I mean, you know, all these things come to mind. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, frankly, that's the big question that we all have. Is it the time when you're going to come back? Now, I'm not saying we are a self-centered lot. But mankind has been self-absorbed since the Garden of Eden. And there they are thinking, hey, is this the time we're going to get the kingdom? Because we know we're going to have an exalted place in the kingdom. They're not thinking about reaching the world. What they're thinking about is, hey, it's time for the kingdom. Let's party. And that's what's on their mind. And Jesus is like, boy, do I have a surprise to you. Imagine what it would have taken at that moment to restore the kingdom. They weren't ready. Jesus had been crucified. He had been executed. The, the, the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. The Jewish people went along with it. Was this time to restore the kingdom? I think not. I think we need some repentance here. They were not ready. And you know, often we want to accelerate things to make it our time. And I, I'm going to share this. Uh, this is an area I'm sensitive about. When COVID hit a couple of years ago, I had a lot of people connecting with me about, will you do a Bible study on Revelation and the end times? And I started a Facebook Live, and we had uh, at one point apparently a couple of thousand people watching. But what people are wanting to know, is this the end time? And I've still gotten that question, and you know, people are like, can you talk about future things and all that? Well, future things, um, number one, that can be divisive. And I'm not afraid of getting into Bible teaching, but it's like, you know, do we need to stir that up? And number two, I'll be honest, I don't know when the Lord's coming back. I cannot promise you that the rapture will occur tomorrow. I know some of you do not believe that there will be a rapture. You believe in one return of Christ. That's fine. I'm not here to argue with that, but I know a lot of people wonder about it. In fact, in 1988, I know most of you were alive back then. Our daughter was born then, so I know it's 34 years ago. Uh, do you remember there was a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Take Place in 1988? Y'all remember that? It was a pamphlet. And somebody in our church really took that hook, line, and sinker. And we're like, you need to be careful because Jesus made it very clear. It, we don't know the time. And we just don't. So I'm not going to try to split the church by getting in those issues. You know, at some point in time, we might have a time of trust where we say, let's talk about the different points of view. But frankly, I don't think that's a priority right now. And frankly, I can't give you much of an answer. I can tell you that things we hear about in terms of technology and uh, other kind of issues going on around the world are certainly happening now. 
But they've been thinking for hundreds and maybe thousands of years that at any moment the Lord is going to come back. And this is what the Jews want, or the disciples wanted to know. Have you ever noticed how Jesus often did not answer questions? That he would answer a question with a question. So when I was in my doctoral program, I, I took a course on writing uh, for publication and our professor had written 52 books and so he had a certain style of writing he wanted us to use. And one of the things I had to do was write a journal article. So I went through and wrote a journal article on the 305 questions that Jesus asked that we have recorded in the Gospels based on the NIV. And from a Christian coaching perspective, what was he asking? And a pretty amazing trend came out as I researched it. I could see over and over, Jesus, it was like volleyball. He would set people up and then, boom, he would smash it. And, you, and, and I'll be glad to give you the paper if, you want to, if you're a glutton for punishment and want to read it. But um, he asked that many questions, and a lot of times he didn't answer. So here it's fascinating to watch what he said when they asked this question. He replied, Not yes, not no directly, but it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. His answer was not a timing answer. His answer was the Holy Spirit. I am not lifting from you, he is saying, the Great Commission. I have told you you're going to reach the world. You are not ready for the kingdom, and you're not ready for me to return. The Holy Spirit is going to come and empower you, and you're going to go out and reach the world. And by the way, by the book of Acts, by the ending of it, in Acts chapter 28, Paul takes the gospel to the city of Rome, and from there it goes all over the Roman Empire. It is said the gospel hit China within the first century. So this would be fulfilled. It's pretty amazing. And that's their commission. And they're like, well, that wasn't the answer we wanted. And while this is going on, notice the timing word. When, this is a word of timing. When he had said this as they were watching. Huh? He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is not the, what they had in their day timer for that day. And they're watching. Now, uh, there's a theory he'll return physically to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. We stood on the Mount of Olives and we looked up at the sky. And we're like, you know, if you want it to be today, that's fine with us. But he ascends to heaven and he is gone and the Holy Spirit has not come. So there is ascension which they're on their own. And they might have been freaking out. And we have an issue here. I think it's important to point this out. We have an issue where there is not closure. It's kind of like a death, an unexpected death. We all want closure. They have no closure. He is gone. What now? When there is no closure, it takes great faith. Because we want an answer. So we humans, we're self-absorbed. We want the answer, and we want it when? Now. And they get none of that. Okay, are y'all still with me this morning? Everybody with me? A few of you? 
So he reiterates the Great Commission here. We're supposed to reach the world. And there is a debate about whether you're supposed to reach Jerusalem or the uttermost part of the earth. And I think that's a dumb debate. We're supposed to reach both. We're supposed to reach the community around us. And we want to have missionaries, you name the country, India, Ukraine, Russia, wherever. And so that's a part of the commission that we're all given. And so I'm going to say to you, you know, you may not be able to do a lifelong uh, mission journey to another country. You might be able to do a short-term mission trip. But every one of us has a mission field around us, right? And so we all need to pray about what does God have for us individually? Like, who has he put us around? Because he puts us around all different kind of people. And living in Colorado, you get some really, really interesting people. We have anybody here who lives in Manitou Springs? If you do, you've got a tremendous mission field there. Because he's called us to reach all. So you get the point. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But anyway. So when he said this, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going and they're gazing up toward heaven, remember, they're like... When's he coming back? They're looking up there. And they're looking up there, and suddenly two men who were not there before, in white robes, what does this make them? They either just walked out of the Ritz-Carlton, Jerusalem, or they are angels, and I'm going to vote angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And basically what they're saying is get to work. Get to work. Get back to the upper room, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then you get to work. And boom. Daryl Bach, who's a professor at Dallas, uh, said about this passage, in sum, there is one central application for the unit. The church is called to engage in mission to the world, knowing that Jesus' return is assured. In major part... It is for mission that the Holy Spirit is sent. So when the Holy Spirit comes down, then they are ready to be energized for mission, and I am very thrilled to say they get the point, and they get out and spread the gospel, and they put their lives on the line. It's an awesome thing to see. You know, it's interesting now after COVID because there's the estimation that 20% of church attendance has dropped People are not coming back to church. A lot of people are online. If you're watching online this morning, thank you. Uh, we appreciate that. But one thing that COVID did I thought was really interesting is it got people out of the church walls and into their communities, or at least into their houses. And it opened up opportunities because so often we feel like for ministry to happen, it has to happen in a box that we call the church. I love... The, the Chronicles of Narnia for the description of Aslan. Aslan is not a tame lion, and Aslan is always on the prowl, and that's the way the Lord wants us to be with the gospel. And back in 1951, Brian Greene wrote, Mass evangelism undoubtedly has its place. Parochial missions can make their contribution. A specially gifted evangelist can proclaim his message. The specialist Christian can make his contribution in factory, in politics, and in teaching. All these are genuine contributions to the evangelistic activity of the Christian church. But, and listen to this, but in the last analysis, it is the worshiping community, that part of the body of Christ that worships, lives, and proclaims the gospel and all its activities in any given neighborhood, which is the real evangelizing agent used by the Spirit of God. It is here amidst the people 
that the church must worship and live her life. If she is faithful both to her God and her gospel, she will be used to hold forth the word of light to the conversion of all that see and hear. But if its light is hid, then wherewith shall the neighborhood be lighted? And if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall the district be salted? So the bottom line is today I'm talking about you going forth in your circle of influence to make an impact for Jesus Christ. And I'm excited. I think there's a lot of things we can pray for that are exciting. And one of them with the June 26, what excites me is that we have a chance again to connect with our community because of Waldo Canyon and the fire. We have a chance to connect with Mountain Shadows and the other part of the community. And for better or for worse, Colorado Springs has had in 12 and 13, uh, some 1,000 families affected by wildfire and flood. It's an opportunity. Uh, for all the disaster we experienced with the fire, I will tell you it's been the greatest God-given opportunity I've ever had. It's just amazing. So uh, three years ago maybe, uh, Susie and I went with a small group uh, down Waldo Canyon. So uh, we, I don't know if you all remember Stacy Garvilla, who was at Channel 13, was the weather, chief weather meteorologist there. She had just moved to town and became a friend, and, and we said to Stacy, if you want to understand what's happened here, you need to see the fire area. So we took her to Black Forest, and then we went with a small group to Waldo Canyon. Now, we had no idea where to hike in Waldo Canyon, because in burning it over, the fire burned over the trails. And God, serendipitously at the spot, as we were about to enter, provided a firefighter who had actually fought the Waldo Canyon fire, who happened to pull up. His name is Eric. Eric actually gave us, he guided us down through the entire canyon. And so we did that, and I want you to see this picture. I have worse pictures of the burned trees. I mean, obviously, they're burned everywhere. They're horrific. But what else do you see there? You see life. You see green. And that's the way it is in the canyon. Now, it's going to take decades or hundreds of years for the trees to grow up fully. But right after the fire in the burned-over area, there came life. Life will find a way God made the world to continually produce life. And so I'm going to use that to challenge you with the June 26th anniversary coming up, and let's do it anyway. Even in our burned over areas, there is the possibility for growth and redevelopment. And for someone whose life has been burned out or whatever, there's a chance for them to come back alive through Jesus Christ. And I'm praying, and I'd appreciate if you pray with me, that June 26th, we'd have a chance to impact the community. We will actually be out there. You're welcome to come out, Flying W, and be there that day to open up opportunities, to open up opportunities for this community. And just pray God will really, uh, really lead us in that, and so that our faith can be transmitted to others. Now today, this might have been a long sermon, but uh, thanks, most of you seem to be still awake. I appreciate that. I just want to cast a vision for missions today. And I guess what I would say in conclusion, may the body of Christ be on fire, and may there be a new vibe at Front Range Alliance Church. Amen. Father, thank you so much for all you do. So grateful to know you. And just looking at this, I'm tickled looking at the disciples, and I realize 
really no different than me. I would have done the same thing. There's no reason for me to be superior over them. I would have been wondering when you're coming back. I would have been nervous about it. I probably would have walked away as well the night you were betrayed. I mean, we're human. We're sinners. But now to watch what's going to happen with these guys when the Holy Spirit comes down, from this point on, this very passage, from the next verse on, they're going to get it and they're going to testify for you. What a cool thing to see. May we all be that way. May we give you the honor and glory. And may we reach our community in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.